Welcome back to the PVN Podcast. This week's episode is kindly brought to you by our friends at Newzest. Today, we're highlighting the amazing people who use the Newzest product, such as the professional footballer, Lauren Barnes, who joins me in the studio today. Hey, Lauren, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. Protein does occur in all plants in varying qualities and quantities, but talk us through a little bit about like why you use a product like Newzest with regards to your nutrition goals. Absolutely. It's actually, this is an interesting question for me because I um, am really into sustainability and this connects both my passions. So sport and sustainability, New Zest uses the cleanest products in the cleanest ways as well. That was a big draw for me. But in terms of having protein that have very little ingredients is something that's also really important to me. And New Zest is really good at that. It tastes great and I'm not even being biased. There's a lot of plant proteins out there with either texture or taste, and New Zest has always been super smooth. They have a variety of flavors, too, that I love, and you can mix them in all different things. But yeah, I think for a plant-based athlete, it is important to be conscious of how much protein that we're taking in and making sure that we're getting enough. I use mine mostly for recovery, which I think is huge. So right after a workout or a game, I immediately have New Zest back into my system whether it's in a shake or I love cooking with New Zest. They've got like an all natural one that you can put in pretty much anything and not have the taste of protein in it. Um, so yeah, I love it for those reasons. I've been with New Zest now for about seven years. When Jonathan first came up to Seattle, we connected and he is literally like why I love New Zest. He's an incredible guy. He really wants New Zest to portray that as well. The community is incredible. And it just makes you fall in love with the product even more because you know that the people behind it, what they're putting into it is all very clean and natural. And they just want to be the best product out there. And for athletes, it's an easy choice. You, you want to put whatever is going to be in your body to be the highest quality, to be organic. And, and at the end of the day, they're also making it in a sustainable way, which is now not hurting the planet either. And for me, that is really important in products that I use and Newsest like literally checks all the boxes for me. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Lauren. Really great to hear your story and yeah, we'll catch you again next time. Thank you so much for having us. And like I said, representing the women in Newsest is incredible for me and I'm just happy to be able to share my story. If you love the sound of Newsest, please do check out newsest.us forward slash PBN20 to get 20% off your first order. The cost alone of diseases of cognition is astronomical. When you realize it, when you look at the amount of money and the budget that is going to affect our economy, taking care of people with brain diseases is, is enormous. Adding greens, more greens in our life, significantly increases life as far as uh, longevity and quality. We're talking uh, in some series as much as 11 years. Adding fruits like blueberries, good fats in, in small amounts like nuts and like walnuts, omega-3 from foods such as chia and flaxseed. People live up to 12 years longer when they live a certain way as far as food is concerned. Today on the PBN Podcast, we welcome award-winning neurologists, researchers, and authors, Dr. Dean and Ayusha Shirzai of Shirzai MD. Dean and Ayushai are a husband and wife duo that have worked side by side for years, empowering their patients and communities to make positive changes in their health and lead better lives. 
They have spent decades studying the impact of nutrition and its effects on the brain, and have developed their groundbreaking NeuroPlan, a customizable brain health program for both individuals and organizations that help them enhance their cognitive capacity and reverse signs of cognitive decline at every age. Dean trained as a neuroscientist at Georgetown University and subsequently did two years of fellowships at the National Institutes of Health and University of California, San Diego. Dean has done important work nationally and internationally that has revolutionized the world of public health by empowering communities to take control of their own health. On her part, Ayusha completed two residencies at Loma Linda University in preventative medicine and neurology, followed by a fellowship in vascular neurology at Columbia University. She also completed a culinary training program and now teaches a large population on how to make tasty, easy and healthy food for their brain health. She is currently enrolled to finish a PhD in women's leadership. Dean and Ayesha are co-founders of the Brain Health and Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Health. They recently published the 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, the definitive food and lifestyle guide to preventing cognitive decline. Together, they also lead the Brain Health Revolution podcast, which delivers useful information and inspires people to learn about the different ways they can take control of their own brain health, avoid chronic diseases, and expand their mind's capacity. They use their platform to share their knowledge and empower individuals and communities to build healthier brains and lifestyles. I am incredibly excited to delve into this discussion with Aisha and Dean on the power of the mind and the impact nutrition and lifestyle has on the body and the brain. I'm Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. As always, if you like this episode, don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps get the message out there. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast team, shows. I Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you guys and finally have you on the podcast. It's, uh, it's our pleasure. It's our honor. We've known about you guys uh, for years. And uh, even before you knew about us, we considered you family because of uh, shared values shared purpose such a pleasure to be here amazing well i really appreciate it you know we've obviously as you say we've known each other for a long time we've done lots of lives together and you know class i think has interviewed you guys as well and you know we've obviously crossed paths in the virtual world many times at various different events so yeah it's a pleasure to sit down with you hi everybody dean and aisha shirzai again here to talk to you about brain and some of the myths and facts that are that surround the idea of neuroscience in the brain to us it's very important to kind of educate and inform everybody about what we know about the brain and what was the truth and what things we need to know this is a very important topic the human brain before we talk about your incredible achievements and all the amazing things that you've done with your lives in recent years, let's go back in time and I'd love to hear both your plant-based or vegan story. How did you discover this lifestyle and where did it all begin for you? So about 2003, Yeah. in 2002 I was at NIH doing some wonky research at the National Institutes of Health, uh, putting chemicals into brains of patients who were in end-stage movement disorders like Parkinson's and others really interesting stuff. I was asked because of my public health background to go to Afghanistan to help out. Initially as a consultant, but later uh, because of my background, I was asked by the president uh, there, um, um, uh, President uh, Karzai, to uh, lead the healthcare system. So I was uh, 30 something years old, was recreating the healthcare system of an entire country. And in a party, I'm, I was talking and this young lady came, sat, sat next to me, and she had also c- come back from United States to help out. 
And she starts talking to me. That's my version. <laughs> and, I'll tell you my version yeah. later. <laughs> and uh, our conversations ironically started around our grandparents, grandfathers who died from Alzheimer's. And it just went on from there. And then after that, we dated for a while. Mm-hmm. And a year later, we were married. Yeah. And, um, and, and it, during that year, mm-hmm. uh, something happened where um, somebody wanted to, or the, they wanted to give me a prize for becoming the deputy minister of health or some, some, uh, it's as, a, as it's a gesture. Exactly. Right? As part of a celebration. <laughs> and the gesture was killing a lamb. And at the time to me, it wasn't, it, I had started to think about it and all that. And I, I wasn't going to do it myself. And they did it in front of me, two of them next to each other. And when one of them was killed, the other one starts nudging it. I had never seen something like that because I grew up in Pittsburgh for the most part. And if you want meat, you go to, you know, Giant Eagle or somewhere else. It's well packaged. It's so, so clean. You don't even think about the animal they're given these euphemisms as far as names, so you don't even know what you're eating. When I saw that, I I, I had started thinking, and then I started reading, and and we started talking, mm-hmm. and uh, we just decided, even though it wasn't the most optimal place to go plant based, we decided to go plant based. Yeah, it's interesting how one event completely changes your paradigm in life. It doesn't happen all the time, but that sacrifice of the lamb and having lived in countries where you know human beings and animals are are close to each other there are no concrete walls and massive separation between where your food comes from so you see how they interact with each other you see their emotions and you see their little proclivities and their personalities and to, to see how that ends up on one's plate. That was the first time that Dean and I were exposed to that. And, you know, after much conversation and, of course, being in a world where justice, social justice, you know, justice of any kind was a big part of our life and we wanted to dedicate ourselves to that, it just didn't make any sense to eat animals anymore. And and then we, of course, you know, while we were learning more about health and wellness, we also found out that, you know, excluding animal protein and animal-based uh, foods from our diet is actually yeah, one of the healthiest things we can do. So from multiple different perspectives, from, you know, the ethical point, from health point environment. and environment point, it just made sense <clears throat> to go plant-based. We actually think that it's the most important thing we as humans can do uh, because it affects so many different domains at the highest level of impact. It really does. And that's a fantastic story. And it's it's a common story, isn't it? Like people come to this realization, uh, what I often call sort of unlocking realization, because deep within us, I believe, uh, is what the Buddhists call a seed of compassion. I think human beings are all imbued with infinite amounts of courage, compassion and wisdom. But if these kind of qualities are not nourished and watered and and uh, cared for they don't um, blossom do they like kind of flowers or, or or you know trees we have to nourish these qualities and we live in a society that doesn't nourish these qualities in fact we live in a very 
hedonistic, selfish society. It's always focused on me, 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 and not really thinking about the other, particularly animals. Animals have been dehumanized, if we could use that word, de-individualized. If we could, is that a word? De-individualized. And, and for centuries, they've been, their autonomy and their sort of, you know, personalities have been really uh, erased. Um, and I'm so fascinated by that realization point where people such as yourself and including myself have that unlocking of that realization. And I always intrinsically knew that animals suffered in some way, but I didn't really think about it. And I think that's on purpose, isn't it? We take our children to pick apples. We don't take our children to slaughterhouses, do we? Because we don't want them to see the truth and the reality. And I know there's a bit of a, a meme that goes around which says if you put a baby in a pen with a rabbit and an apple, the baby's quite likely to play with the rabbit and eat the apple. Very few human children will rip the head off the rabbit and eat the rabbit, right? That's just not our nature. Our teeth, our whole body, and we'll talk about anatomy in a bit, but our whole bodies are geared towards being almost more frugivore in nature than carnivore or even omnivore as, as, as we would like to think. The resilience is hopeful because that that's what we talk about is yeah. the fact that even late in life we can continue to expand brain's capacity maintain its its function the other part side of it is that if the right things are not done the right environment is not provided even during childhood that the brain can be damaged irrevocably and yeah. and uh, that's that's important to know one of your uh, kind of well, your most important aspect of your lives is is the specialty of the brain. Um, I'd love to sort of talk a bit about you know how you got into this part of the body, like why that part of the body? Because obviously the human body is made up of so many different organs and tissues and elements. You know, why did you pick that part uh, of the brain for for you know where to focus? Well, we got interested in the brain, you know, at a at a very young age. Um, we both had grandparents who were incredibly smart people and had done such wonderful things in the world. You know, Dean's grandfather was the minister of education for an entire country. And back then he fought for women's rights and women's education. And my grandfather was the prime minister of our country. And he basically, you know, reinstated the constitution towards women's rights. So these were tremendous personalities in our lives who were role models. And we both saw them have dementia. And we saw how this disease slowly and gradually just robbed them of their beautiful personalities. And for those people who have a loved one with dementia, they would know how that feels, where you see a gradual decline in function where somebody who took care of everything and everyone around them suddenly become like children where they rely on other people. And that is one of the most devastating, painful experiences anybody could ever mm -hmm. have. And so we kind of grew up. It was a privilege to be a caregiver for our grandfathers. It was a privilege to be in that, in that environment, but it was also very painful and we didn't quite understand what was going on. So that intrigued our interest in, in brain health. And I'm saying us because that's actually what brought us close to each other. That was our first conversation together, too. It was written and in we, the stars. <laughs> it was in the, yeah, it was written it in was, the stars. And yes. we wanted to dedicate our lives. You know, back then, once before I went into medical school, I went in uh, to figure out a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. That was my goal. I'm going to understand the brain and I'm going to find a treatment for this disease that took away my loved one from me. You know, after going into this field, we were just fascinated by by this beautiful, incredible organ. This is who we are. The brain is who we are. We can replace the kidney. We can replace the heart. We can replace any organ. We're still the same person. But the moment you replace the brain, you're that person, that brain. It's it, this little three pound organ, 2% of our body's weight, 
is literally the seat of our consciousness. It's it's from moment to moment. It is who defines us. I mean, in almost in a self-reflective way, mm-hmm. and how we see the world around us, and the little mood changes affects our perspective on that, and the thoughts that come out of that change the world. Uh, that little organ, over time, has brought behaviors that are not natural. We're talking about a world where animals survive by just power, literally survival of the fittest. I know there's more complexity to that, but that's basically it. So when people talk about natural, I say, no, we are, we humans, if you want to say that we're different, we're different because we're going against the natural. We're going towards a world of justice. We're going to a world uh, of what's right. We're actually giving up the momentary survival for the long-term human and environmental and and planetary thriving. We're not momentary beings. We're beings that create time. We're beings that create space. We're beings that create environments that did not exist before. We're beings that create, eliminate suffering that was ubiquitous, literally because of this three-pound organ. So it's at the interface of those things that we've become plant-based because it addresses all the health issues. Literally 80% of diseases can be prevented because if we just make certain choices with the organ that allows you to make the choices. And that just doesn't succumb to the thing that's tasty. When I, I, the most offensive thing I hear is, but bacon. Yes, but life, but planet, but suffering, but growth, but thriving. That's what makes us different. If you want to say that humans are different, we're not different because we were select. We're different because we choose to be different, and that comes from that amazing brain. Mm. I, I'm sorry I, that that just. No, I love uh, that. That's that. I mean, you know, you're speaking my language. Like we are incredible beings. We are capable of so much, and it's because of this thing that we have between our ears. Obviously, conversely, we're also capable of a lot of destruction as well. We're capable of destroying so much. We've already destroyed most of the biodiversity on this planet. There's so little left. Um, and, you know, we'll get into to that later. But, you know, I'm interested in like the brain itself and, and what we know, what we do not know. We know that it's an organ between our ears. We all have one, but so do animals. So do cows and chickens and pigs and um, many mammals and fish, all mammals and fish have a brain. But why are we different in the way we are different? You know, we've been able to evolve complex languages that have allowed us to essentially take over this entire planet. But then many animals, uh, mammals and fish and birds all have brains too that allow them to also communicate and have complex languages as well what makes our brain so different are we more advanced are there more neurons like what is it about the human brain that's uh, different to say a chimpanzee or any any other sort of ape creature so one area of our brain is very different it's called the prefrontal cortex it's an organizer it's a planner it's a uh, it's an organ that allows us to abstain so when people say I'm free, so I can do whatever I want, like teenagers, of course, hopefully our teenagers <laughs> are not. No, you're, if there is freedom, it's a not doing. Uh, if I'm hungry, the human animal is the only one that for a cause chose not to eat for 40 days. If we are angry, we're the only animal that can abstain from hitting, killing, because we are not only that, we take the suffering upon ourselves for the longer plan, for the greater plan. 
that planning, organizing, and abstaining comes from the prefrontal cortex, from the frontal lobe in general. Uh, all primates have it, but ours is very unique. It's not even the number of cells. I mean, there are brains that are bigger than ours, um, elephant brains, dolphin brains. But uh, the connectivity is a little different, but the prefrontal cortex is very different. It's that planner, it's that inhibitor or abstainer. Uh, that's, that's what makes us different. And, and again, um, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a thing that also gives us pleasure indirectly. It's a weird thing. I get pleasure in not doing something that is supposed to give me pleasure. Look at that jujitsu. That's like weird. Like, am I playing psychological games on myself? Oh, because I didn't eat this, I actually feel better. Yeah. And it, it is. Because, because, I mean, I think the moment, the, every day that, uh, not to belabor this point, that we don't eat an animal or we don't cause suffering or I don't raise my voice because it's so easy. Or I, I open the way for others that did not have the door open for them in the past. Or forgive. Or forgive. It is such a pleasure, but that's our frontal cortex telling us that. Would you so say it's like a thing. muscle? I mean, obviously it's not muscular tissue, but the brain behaves very much like a muscle in many ways and the way it remembers and the way it kind of um, adapts. Is, would you say that it has similarities to muscular tissue? Um, I wouldn't really call it like a muscle, but yes, it does adapt. It does, uh, it does change. We do have the capacity to grow it, to expand it. We have the capacity to allow our brain to work in a multidimensional manner. Um, each part is dependent on another. Each part works in congruence and in synergy with another. And, um, and that's the most beautiful thing. You know, a lot of times we kind of become myopic and focus on one thing, but we realize that making a small change, even if it's outside of that mm -hmm. realm, can completely put everything in, in, in perspective and it, it balances everything out. Very simple example, you know, people who have difficulty with their emotions or with controlling their, their emotions, something outside of their life, like as silly as check boxes, right? Or as silly as having a whiteboard on your on your wall and identifying your stresses completely changes your perspective and your prefrontal cortex and your frontal lobe and your temporal lobe and your 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 parietal lobe, your visual spatial, everything falls in place because you've realized that you can actually be a better version of yourself. So yes, the brain does change and we have control over it. Beautifully stated. I mean, uh, in a way, it's much more than that. So when people compare the brain to muscle, it's actually injustice to the brain because muscle, no, no I should said it beautifully yeah, yeah. because muscle grows in one dimensional size, right? right? And even by size, it only can, the biggest person, you know, is three times bigger than they could be. The brain grows in so many different ways. As far as connectivity, let's just take that. Each, we have 87 billion neurons. Each of them can make a couple of connections or as many as 30,000 connections. That's a 15,000 times increase. Imagine a person growing 15,000 times. Uh, that, that puts incredible Hulk to, to shame. Oh, yeah. But that's just one dimensional of growth. But the other dimension of growth that Aisha alluded to beautifully is that it's not just those connections. It's the functional overlay and connectivity that puts you at a different dimension of understanding. For example, I, I don't know if this is a subject, but this is kind of cool. I'm, I'm into chess. So I see these videos of people playing chess, these young people, and I'm so jealous, playing chess with 20 people with blindfolds. I'm like, I'm going to, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, forget about that inhibiting that anger. I'm, I get angry with it. Like, how is this person standing there playing 20 people with blindfolds? Well, 
they've harnessed the focus in their brain, which opens up the door to everything else. And now that you have that level of focus, which everybody can have, or different degrees, but much more than we do now, then that gives you access to greater memory. And then you can actually even expand memory in different ways. So that's exponential on exponential. And then processing comes in. Oh my goodness. This is not how we teach our kids in school. Mm-hmm. It's just sit down angrily with, with stressors, narrow vision, the bottleneck of fear leading learning, as opposed to opening up the bottleneck of infinite, fo- well, great focus, great memory, great processing. So that there's a tremendous potential in brain that has not been tapped at all. Have you ever heard of the brain described as a organic or bio quantum computer? Oh, it, it is. I mean, I don't want to make it like Chopra-esque, jump all <laughs> over the place. So, so we're still very science and, and physical based. So, But the, as, it, as it speaks to a constant adaptive and expansive nature of it, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so another myth, the differences between a woman and a man's brain, you know, yeah. we've heard so many times men are from Mars and women are from Venus, which I think is the sloppiest statement ever. I think there's a little bit of to... a sexism in there as well. I, I, I think, I don't want to make this controversial, but they're trying to, but nonetheless, I'm going to leave that one alone. Uh, but right i mean i mean that, that's a very uh, that's an oversimplified statement that people use to describe the differences or at least you know give examples of the biological explanations between the of the differences between men and women and you know nowadays we're a little more sophisticated where you know they say that women are more elaborate with their emotions and men are very you know very good at specifically making decisions and actions and so on and so forth and really, there's This is no... despite the fact that all the wars have been started by men. <laughs> yeah, well, not, yeah, that's, that, that, that's completely glossed over. Right. But not, right. yeah. I mean, definitely, they're, they're, you know, we're still in the process of understanding how cognition actually works for men and women. As a matter of fact, specifically in the field of Alzheimer's disease, they're trying to understand the phenotypic expression or how does Alzheimer's disease prevent, presents itself in men versus women. But, you know, to say that women's brain is good in certain things and men is good in others is really not not clear. Yes, women may be able to show more empathy towards other individuals, but it, it just depends on really? the individual. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> true. Though. That's so. true. Absolutely. The ability to hold particles or kind of like thought or, or reality in a superposition and being able to essentially, you know, behave a bit like a galaxy, really, you know, the way that there's this interconnected stars or neurons and the way everything fires and everything is interconnected. But the, you know, the galaxy or the brain or the personality, it isn't in one thing. It isn't in one place that when you look at the brain and when you look at personality and who we are in our consciousness, and I want to ask you about consciousness. When I say, where is Robbie? If I cut off my hand, am I still Robbie? If I cut off my arm, am I still Robbie? If I cut off most of my body, am I still Robbie? If I cut off myself up to here, am I still Robbie? If I remove this part of my hem- this hemisphere, am I still me? If I remove another piece, am I still me? Who am I and where am I? You know what I mean? I think it's an age old question. Are we getting any closer to understanding what is consciousness and what gives each of us the uniqueness that is 
who we are as people. Yeah, we're still very, um, uh, the two of us, if I'm, if I'm speaking for sure. us, we're very physical oriented. So uh, definitely we think it's in the brain and we have experiments um, or accidental experiments uh, where people have injured certain parts of the brain and they're able to communicate or afterwards or beforehand. And we know how much of them is lost mm-hmm. in, in increments, how much of their awareness where persons had a, wire a metal show shoot up because they were working on a train a track uh, where they had to pack dynamite and accidentally hit uh, blew up and hit the uh, wire through the frontal lobe and the frontal lobe was damaged that person's character is on video actually very different they're no longer there in many ways as far as consciousness they're automatons so we kind of know what each element is and where a damage could actually have significant effect on on our our sense of self or the language centers. Aisha is a stroke specialist, right. and and with stroke is very unique because stroke here versus here, and we have strokes everywhere, gives you incredible different realms of reality where all of a sudden language is gone, perception of language. That person actually doesn't even exist there, or what what's called where they an entire side of the world is missing. Yes where they actually cannot see and cannot feel and they forget that there is, say, for example, a left side that exists and the perception that of the left side goes away as well. Everything else is normal. So this person is not, they're completely talking to you, but the left-sided universe does not exist. Or for example, Anton syndrome, where they have a stroke at the back of their brain and they lose the perception that they can't see. They think they can, but they actually can't see anything and they keep on bumping into things And they're like, oh, no, I just made a mistake. And they confabulate and make up stories about the fact that they're bumping into things. But as a matter of fact, they can't see a single thing. And and, and this is a normal person in every other way. Yet the perception of loss of perception is not there. Mm. Imagine that. The brain is the mechanism. It is is the tool. It is the machine. But it is an incredible. So by saying that, we're not diminishing it. So whenever we talk to some cousins and we kind of explain things in, uh, in, in medical or, or, or a scientific way, they say, oh, you're taking the poetry away. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's the opposite. To know something is poetry. <laughs> to, and uh, we're beginning to know more and more. Now, I'm, we're not going to act like we know everything. We don't. We're not close. But there's so much more we know about this amazing organ. And thankfully, with <clears throat> technology and science moving forward, we have such incredible devices and technology to be able to quantify and identify these new feelings, these new, new perspectives. And so we're really excited for what the future holds in the field of neurology and neuroscience in general. There's a thing called deep brain stimulation where they put wires into the basal ganglia of Parkinson's patients. So you see them frozen and then you dial and all of a sudden they start moving, walking, and you can see videos of that. Or they're shaking a lot and you dial because it's a specific part of basal ganglia works like circuitry. You know where you're stimulating, all of a sudden they start walking. But one of the paraphenomena they found that is that that also you can actually affect emotions and thoughts through that. So when you're dialing certain parts, you actually can see people's behaviors change and their proclivities change. And their emotions change. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful system that it's it's worth exploring and finding more about this this uh, this machine. So one of the things that the brain does is create memory, store memory, fabricate memory. It does a lot of interesting things with memory. I'm fascinated. I was fascinated to read that um, neurons actually exist in the heart. 
and there are also neurons in the gut, neurons that are the same as the neurons in the brain. Am I right? Correct. Um, and people often talk about remembering or feeling things in their gut or their heart hurts. Is there any sort of science or is there any uh, awareness of whether we are actually feeling things here or in our gut or is feeling an emotion and memory only in the brain and nowhere else? So the neurons in the gut and the brain and, and the heart are not so much the understanding component of it. They are the receptive component of it. The understanding of those emotions or the emotions themselves are happening in the brain. But for example, you, you, something happens and you feel this weird gut feeling in your stomach. You're in love and something you know, happens and you, you give this feeling. You or, felt it. I felt definitely. it, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. But it's not like the fact that you felt love in your stomach. The effect was felt in the stomach because the emotion was felt in the brain and it affected the stomach. Mm-hmm. And vice versa can happen. Certain things happen that makes you uncomfortable. The stomach experiences and sends the message to the brain and then you feel it. And and here's the thing, the beautiful thing. And and, and uh, this is 2006, seven, no, six. Aisha had done an amazing piece of research with fMRI. fMRIs are functional MRIs where the, you're in the machine and doing an experiment and the brain, the machine actually is actually looking at you thinking. So if the experiment is with memory, it's actually watching the memory work. So it lights up. So, And then she was presenting that in a big conference, about 4,000 people. Yes. And this was one of your first big conferences. Yes, I was uh, yeah. <clears throat> very nervous. Oof. My solution was giving her a beta blocker to slow the heart. And I'm going to get back to that because that's where the whole trick is. So I gave a beta blocker, but I didn't know she was sensitive to these. So on the way up the podium in front of 4,000 people, she twisted her ankle and broke her ankle. I got dizzy. Busy, yeah. But I was very graceful. I didn't fall. No. I was wearing heels. Yes. I walked up the stage and I presented it for about 15, 20 minutes. 15 minutes, yes. Took some questions and answers. And I had a buzz in my head because of the uh, darn beta blockers. And I come down and I sit on the chair the and I look like at my foot. Bit. And I, it's the size of a watermelon. So, you know, I had an avulsion fracture of my foot, but I didn't feel any pain. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I felt pain later, about yes. an hour later. And, 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 and this was in front of like <laughs> Harvard, Columbia, all these prof- the department leaders. She did an amazing job. But the fault was mine, obviously, as always. No, but but so. the, 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 the thing was, though, why did we give beta blocker? So beta blocker is supposed to slow your heart down. So why would slowing your heart make you less nervous? Because the feet, for millions of years, we've actually known that if my heart is beating fast, because the only occasion that that would happen is if you're running away from a tiger or something like that, or a a bad situation. If your heart's beating fast, I got to be nervous. And that link is made, but you can cheat the system backwards. If your heart is beating fast and you slow it down artificially, you actually feel less nervous. So that's where the nerve, the nerves in the heart and the gut work. They're not the processors, but they're the detectors, I which see. is beautiful. Yeah. It's like the sensors, the sensors. The sensors. Yes. Yes. That makes yeah. perfect sense. And the brain itself, you know, is where we experience, uh, as you say, a lot of pleasure and joy, but it also where we experience a lot of other things like fear and anxiety and also things that go wrong as well, like, you know, schizophrenia and uh, Alzheimer's and stroke. You know, what are some of the th- sort of most severe forms of brain injury? And, and you know, do people come back from these kind of injuries or... You know, are they all very different? 
I guess it depends. So we have injuries of the brain that happen all of a sudden, you know, things like stroke or traumatic brain injury, you know, people who get into motor vehicle accidents have just devastating injuries. And and then you have these chronic, slow, indulating diseases like Alzheimer's disease, like vascular dementia, like Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis. <clears throat> I can't make a generalized statement about whether people come back or not. And I think one of the things that we are focusing on is creating that resilience. People who have brain resilience and reserve, which is essentially neuroplasticity and the connections that are made between the brain cells early in life, that seems to be quite protective. Mm -hmm. If we have more brain reserve, whether it's a stroke or a traumatic brain injury or dementia or Parkinson's disease, either don't progress, the disease doesn't progress very quickly, or the effects are minimal. And so it just depends on the baseline lifestyle that people have, what they have done during their childhood, during their youth and midlife to protect their brain, to kind of create that cushion for any kind of injury moving forward. And we see that every single day. People who have had reserves, say, for example, if people have had low vascular risk factors, if they were able to manage their blood pressure and cholesterol and diabetes, they were highly educated, not just educated, but cognitively challenged throughout their lives, they tend to have lower risk of damage and progression of any damage that has incurred, as opposed to others who don't have that cushion. Mm. With, uh, with the damage that's done, you know, for whether it's stroke or any other sort of brain disease, if damage is done to an, a, a part of the brain, uh, and you talked about earlier, Dean, about how a person's no longer there, like the person or the consciousness, if that damage is repaired, does that person or that element or aspect of us return with it? It depends on where it was. I mean, how how massive it was. There, there are times where we have these strokes that were half a hemisphere is gone. That person is not coming out, especially sudden. Slow progression of a disease is different than fast. I mean, I'll tell you the example of a slow progression. I had a young lady come to me uh, who was having headaches, new headaches. We we do all the treatments, everything, nothing worked. So finally, we said, let's get an image. She had not gotten an MRI since childhood, very early childhood. And we did the MRI and she had a one inch brain. You know, inside the brain, there's the ventricles, which is spaces filled with fluid, cerebrospinal fluid. In her case, the ventricles were huge. And there was only one inch of brain or about- Sliver. Sliver of brain. Sliver of a brain. Yeah. But yet, guess what? This young lady was a PhD, summa cum laude, I mean, amazing human being. And four children, which is a feat in itself. Yeah. So how is it possible (laughs) that she had suffered this condition, yet she was so successful? Well, we did the history and we found out that during childhood she had an infection and then after death. So that what what usually infection, especially meningitis or uh, 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 infections of the brain does, it, it closes the absorption of the fluid. So the fluid starts building and building. And in her case, it probably built very slowly where nobody noticed and did kill the cells around it, but the slow nature of it was such that she was able to adapt and still her family pushed her in education and she was able to achieve such amazing feat. So when it's something like that, that slowly, and yet it's not a very important center of the brain, like the thalamus or somewhere, yes, they can survive. But if it's a sudden one, Usually, and it's massive, you can't recover from that. Or even if it's a sudden sudden one in a very strategic place like the thalamus, you can't recover. So it's, it's a combination of things. It's a bit of a metaphor for the earth. 
you know, the earth can actually handle slow and gradual change, but this quick change that's coming to our biosphere at the hands of humanity, the animal kingdom, you know, the plant kingdom cannot adapt quick enough. And that's what's beautiful about the universe. The microcosm is reflected in the macrocosm in so many beautiful ways. You know, the uh, the, the I was going to say the golden ratio, but what's it called? The, um, you know, that beautiful pattern that repeats in life. I've forgotten the name of it. My brain is on the go slow today. It's been a long day. But there is this beauty in nature. You look at the brain and the neurons of the brain and, and you compare it to like the universe, for example, and there are these similarities in the way galaxies are connected. And you look at the way the way the, the brain works and you look at the way the you know galaxies look and feel and the way trees are and the way the rivers are. You know, there's this beautiful sort of biomimicry that goes on across everything. My next question leads nicely on to sort of like what the brain is capable of and what it does. Do you ever feel like we'll get to the point where we can replicate it? Consciousness exists within us as people, organic beings. But do you feel that it would be possible for us to replicate the engineering, you could say, of the human brain and bring and give life to artificial consciousness, essentially? Interesting. So this is a, yeah, this is a controversial one. Yeah. Uh, we, 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 people don't like our answers usually, but, but it's okay. <laughs> we think so. We think so. I think, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, uh, our son is, uh, both our kids... Uh, they're smarter than us. Uh, he's in AI and and uh, she's in uh, biomedical engineering. Look at it, you know, quantum computers and things like that. It's a matter of time for us to be able to achieve the capacity to prolong consciousness, and, and, and so that's one element of it: prolonging consciousness mm -hmm. and connecting consciousness to a bigger reservoir, and then connecting it in a way that's more ubiquitous. I, I think those are scary concepts to some, but uh, to me. Oh, I welcome it. I, I think that it's kind of arrogant of us to think we are the epitome. We are the apex. And I say, really, have you ever looked at an eagle? I would love to be an eagle. You know, what if you can actually expand your consciousness by connecting it to a, um, a quantum computer where if you want to fly, you can fly at least virtually uh, and, and in a very real way, though, or if you can um, expand your memory, short term memory from seven bits to a thousand bits to a million bits. Imagine what you could do or imagine what you could feel. Imagine what. And I, I bring the word love because we are so love centric and we should be because, I, I, you know, Descartes said, I cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. I say, no, in Susi ergo sum. I love, therefore, I am. And that's scientific. That's meaningful. We are as meaningful as we can love. We are as meaningful as we can connect. So what if we can expand that capacity to beyond the momentary alertness and awareness, beyond our momentary anxieties that, you know, whether the TV show did this or my, whether my bill is being paid to where I can remember, I can access libraries at a time. I can process entire you know, millions of information at a time. I can reach millions of other hearts and mind. Well, it's not hearts. There are millions of other limbic <laughs> emotional centers at a time. That's a beautiful state to be. To Is say, I am. Gene? Are we building the matrix? <laughs> we're building a hybrid. I'm surprised by the movie Matrix, either one or the other. What about the hybrid, a hybrid where we can access the matrix and its infinity 
and then come back to reality and experience the the, the corporeal existence. So, so I never thought that this conversation would be going there, but thank you, Robbie. It would be incredible. And I'm a, I'm a huge like science geek and I love technology. And I believe that humanity will give birth to artificial intelligence because, you know, our human bodies are very frail. We easily yes. damage. We don't live very long, you know, uh, ultimately. But between our ears, we have these incredible, this incredible organ, which in my belief, in my opinion, should outlive us, you know, our consciousness and all the time and energy and creativity and our thought. And of course, you know, it's, I don't want to sound elitist, but you know, not all human beings are exactly the same, but all human beings are capable of great things when given the opportunity, you know? And I think that when we allow ourselves to, well, it's actualization, isn't it? Self-actualization. When we build a society where human beings are given the opportunity to focus more on here rather than just trying to survive, which a lot of the world is, what an incredible species we could be. Because at the moment, you know, most of humanity is just trying to get by and just trying to survive. And the lucky few do get to spend a lot of time up here and evolve the, you know, the, the gray matter, as it were, and kind of, you know, move our species forward in some ways, in other ways, maybe take us back, who knows. But I'll put a pin in that conversation. I feel like we should have a definitely a deep dive into... I want to expand Dean, that a little bit. Dean, you've got a further, further point, <laughs> yeah. go for it. One little thing. So we're living in a survival state. Up to 1990s, 90% of the world was living on subsistence. I mean, just we're talking about $1.50 a day. I went to recreate the healthcare system of Afghanistan and other places. One out of four children would die before the age of five. One out of six women would die during pregnancy. And then the rest would just be in survival mode. Okay, the next stage is surviving beyond poverty. The next stage is surviving beyond just uh, living from f- food to food to from table, you know, from dinner to lunch to, to then the next stage is to live in the, in the cerebrum and the brain. The le- next stage is expanding the capacity of the brain to feel more, to see more, to, to hear more, to do more, to do more good. We're, we're in that direction. And I love that trajectory. Now, the brain, we've talked a lot about the brain and, and what it is and what it does and how it goes wrong. But one of the, again, the most important parts of what you do is how do we protect it? We talk a lot about diet and nutrition. What are some of the things that we're doing wrong in our lifestyles that really damage our brains? And also, on the other side, what are the things that we should be doing to protect it? There, there are a lot of things that we do on a day-to-day basis that you know seem to be automatic, that seem to be the norm. But unfortunately, with the kind of lives that we're leading, just, you know, unaware of our environment and just in a rushed way, that seems to be very, very harmful. And we see it, you know, as as scientists, we have access to numbers. And when you look at the numbers of diseases of the brain, it's just massive and it's pretty scary. Um, The cost alone of diseases of cognition is astronomical. You know, people are fighting, the left and right are fighting in politics. But when you realize it, when you look at the amount of, you know, money in the budget that is going to affect our economy, taking care of people with brain diseases is is enormous. The numbers this year for 2021, based on the um, Alzheimer's Association in the United States, was $355 billion dollars direct cost of dementia and there's a lot of there's there's a whole lot of other costs as well indirect costs of people actually losing their time at work and staying home to take care of their loved ones so this is really going to affect our system in general if we don't pay attention to it and so 
to kind of summarize the things that are affecting our brains negatively, you know, we've created this acronym called neuro, but it really nicely summarizes everything and nutrition, you know, the kind of foods that we're putting in our body is causing a lot of inflammation and oxidation and dysregulation of glucose and fat metabolism that destroys not only the, the brain cells, but, you know, the arteries that supply nutrition, oxygen and nutrition to the brain. Lack of exercise and sedentary behavior is really shrinking our brains. Then we have unwind. U is for unwind, which is stress management. Bad stress or inability to manage the elements in our life and not really engaging with something that is meaningful and purposeful in life is causing a lot of damage to the brain. R is for restorative sleep, you know, getting deep, good sleep, at least seven to eight hours of restorative sleep is incredibly important because our memories are created during the deeper stages of sleep and the brain cleanses itself. Sleep in itself is a whole entire topic that we can spend hours and hours talking about. It's just so fascinating how the brain changes its architecture Amazing. to allow for it to get cleansed during <clears throat> the deeper stages of sleep. And, you know, with, with the kind of foods that we're eating, with the kind of conversations we're having, the lack of any movement is really affecting it. And then the last element is optimization or O for optimize, making sure that we stay sharp or creating tension, bringing actually good stress in our life is something that is lacking. You know, we always think that stress is bad, but there is such a thing as good stress. And having that in our life, having challenge and complexity and a purpose-driven life it literally grows the brain. It creates the, the right kind of hormones, the right kind of chemicals for the neuroplasticity to take place. So those are, you know, just a, as an umbrella, those are the factors that really affect our brain that we need to talk about. So the foods that we're going to highlight are the ones that are non-perishable, yes. that can maintain for months at a time, that are easily assembled into tasty, wonderful foods, but at the same time, most importantly, maintain your health. We're going to start with certain categories that we put together. We're going to start with whole grains and pseudo grains. The first item is brown rice. Brown rice has a lot of fiber, a lot of protein, a lot of complex carbohydrates. The second thing that is incredibly healthy is our oatmeal, especially you know extra thick rolled oats or steel cut oats. Um, these can be used for breakfast. Again, very high in fiber, complex carbohydrates and proteins. Great for breakfast, great for making muffins, granola, adding it to soups and really satiating. The third item is quinoa. Quinoa is a pseudo grain, but it comes under the umbrella of whole grains. It's amazing. It's a complete protein. And as you know, it stores very well on the shelf for months without going bad and rancid. You don't have to refrigerate it as some people uh, say. And it's absolutely delicious. Again, you can mix it with oatmeal and brown rice. You can have it with your oatmeal for breakfast and mix it in in muffins and baked goods as well. And the protective elements of our day-to-day -day lives, what should we be doing more of? Obviously, you talked about what we shouldn't be doing. Diet is one of the not easiest things that we can do, but it's certainly accessible for a lot of people. We can make those conscious choices to eat that or that or to do this or that. But Diet-wise, you know, what should I be doing or being more mindful of uh, about what I'm eating on a daily basis to really lay down the protection of my brain and avoid dementia and, and cognitive decline? Uh, being aware of adding things is a lot easier. So we know that adding greens, more greens in our life, significantly increases life uh, as far as uh, longevity and quality. Mm -hmm. We're talking uh, in some series as much as 11 years. 
adding fruits like blueberries, two to five years increased function for the brain. So greens, legumes, you know, berries, good fats and, and small amounts like nuts and like walnuts, omega-3 from foods such as chia and flaxseed. Of all the fats, the only fat that the brain needs are omega-3s. It needs it in quite a bit. We did the reviews that were, are about to be published. Those are critical. And, and, and those are enough. Those are plenty. And then as far as taking things away, it doesn't mean taking away taste. You can eat sweets, but don't eat sugar. You know, uh, sugar is in high amounts is destructive. Carbs are not. Sugar is. Fats, which are in, found in meats, cheeses, butters, saturated, saturated fats yeah. to be specific, are very harmful. We're talking about source of oxidation, force, source of lipid dysregulation, even source of uh, inflammation and everything that we're talking about that's bad, the four processes, by what's found in meats, cheeses, and butters. So just being aware of those things and systematically reducing them quantitatively reducing them will change your life. We know that um, uh, people live up to 12 years longer when they live a certain way as far as food is concerned. Um, and then movement. Movement is critical. Our neurotransmitter system. It's funny. The, the, the neurotransmitter that's for movement and motivation is the same. It's dopamine. So movement is critical to your life. Make a life based on movement. Yes, go to the gym if you want, but forget about beyond the gym. Your house should be a place where you're moving all the time. You're dancing all the time. You're jumping all the time. You're standing and talking, watching a show while standing up. You're, you're, you're reading while you're walking. Make sure there are no steps because I don't want anybody <laughs> to fall down the steps. So a movement is critical both for motivation, for health, but also for, for mood. Movement and change is dopamine, but the baseline emotion is serotonin, which is affected by dopamine, again, by movement. Mm -hmm. So over time, movement creates the baseline emotional state. So move, move, move. One study from Harvard showed that people that did a brisk walk, just a brisk walk, 25 minutes a day, reduced their chance of Alzheimer's by 45%. Yeah. Wow, Imagine what it does for regular brain. Can you, you know? say that again for our audience? <laughs> yes, for those in the back. A, a brisk walk, just a simple brisk walk, reduce your chance of Alzheimer's by 45%. And that's Alzheimer's. I mean, but the operative term is brisk. You know, when I say, I ask my patients, do you exercise? Not a casual saunter. Yeah, they say, yeah. oh, Dean, we're fine. I do gardening. I do this. I said, gardening is great, That's that, that, but that's meditation. We're talking about exercise as a separate thing. Yeah. And then the third thing is, please invest in your sleep space. Mm -hmm. you, you spend money on spas. You spend money on all kinds of machines that, that can connect to your brain. And Are you talking no. mattresses and beds and things? Mattresses, good pillow that supports the brain. And make sure that there's dark room. And when you're turning on the light in the middle of the night, it's a, it's a red light. It's not a bright light. Soundproof the, the room. Light. Yeah. Lower the no TV. No TV. I, I don't get in, it. Not when in the bedroom. Have TV in the bedroom. Yeah. Lower the, the 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 temperature a bit because it appears that body likes a little cooler at night. Mm -hmm. So all these are great. And don't eat two hours before sleep. And just those simple. Oh, and then the most important, brain is a pattern recognizer. Go to bed the same time. Wake up eight hours later the same time and create a pattern. 
how why just let me ask you personally like why do i find it so hard to build routine when it comes to bedtime my sleep cycle and i wear uh, an aura ring which tracks everything, yes 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 um, it, it you know it's all over the place i i'm i i fight routine like a child i hate going to bed because i just want to stay up and just learn and read and watch and you know my brain doesn't like sleep almost is, is there something wrong with me <laughs> no there's nothing i think uh changing sleep habits is one of the most difficult things yeah. ever it's more difficult than changing your dietary habits um, some people tend to be more active later during the day compared to uh, morning time we are so different i mean we live together but he's a morning person and he's ready to go and he's you know, talking at one mile an hour, and I still <laughs> am trying to catch up with the surroundings. And, you know, I'm more active when it comes to later at night. So people, you know, they function differently. And they have sometimes what we call delayed onset sleep, uh, you know, sleep time. But you know, whatever, whatever it is, knowing one's pattern is the most important thing. And then making one tiny, small little change every day and course correcting over a long period of time. A lot of us just kind of give up when things don't work right away. But sleep is something that will take a long, long time. And you just have to make those incremental steps very, very small, but consistently doing them. The last thing we work on in our program is sleep. The first thing we work on is exercise. Exercise is a solid thing that you see the response and the feedback right away. Sleep is a ship. Changing that course takes time. So for you, if you're a late sleeper, okay, stick to that. Let's say 12 o'clock, but make it 12 o'clock and wake up eight hours later. That's all that matters. Yeah, just kind of shift. Shift the whole thing, but it should be patterned. And then what you can do is shift it earlier by 10 minutes if you want. I mean, it doesn't, but pattern is critical for the brain. I'm going to give it a try. Um, you spoke of the neuro plan, which is nutrition, exercise, restorative sleep, unwinding, and optimization. What are some of the impacts that you've seen and the results that you've seen from this program in people? Oh, goodness. You know, we get so much energy just talking about this with our with our patients and with our research group and in the community. So Dean and I are both physicians, so we see patients in the clinic and you know, we work uh, with one individual at a time, but we also work in the communities. And one of the most beautiful things that we've seen is, you know, essentially training the trainers to spread this message into the community. And at an individual level, we've seen, you know, things like sleep patterns getting better and people's cholesterol is just plummeting down and memories improving memories improving their their sugar levels when it kind of reverses and gets back to normal their sharpness and processing speed gets better a lot of people are able to even reverse their mild cognitive impairment which is you know an objective way of measuring what their neuropsychological scores were and they actually become better and they become perfect We've seen that over and over again, but we're really focusing on applying this at a massive community level because there's no there's no shortage of any evidence. It works. It works. It works completely. How can we apply this in a larger scale where people have the capacity to take care of themselves before they end up into a clinic or a hospital? That's what we're focusing on. And have you got any percentages of like success that you could share? Like how exactly how successful is it as it, you know, when it comes to the effect, the positive effect? Yeah. So if people apply this perfectly early enough before they have dementia, as much as 80 to 90% success rates, but that as it happens, perfect application is difficult. So you get a whole range. But remember, even if you get 20% improvement in the numbers that we have now, just cost-wise, that's the tangible thing we have. 
We're talking about five. We said Aisha said two hundred forty million plus five hundred three hundred million five hundred billion dollars. Twenty percent is a hundred billion dollars. That would be saying financially. But imagine all the lives that would be changed, and that's at the dementia level. We're talking about a much larger population that are pre-dementia, which are cognitive decline, where the brain becomes slower. Nobody gives it a name. Their life is changing. They're not developing dementia, but uh, so all of those would be affected. And we're seeing profound effect in that. We're talking about 80 to 90% of the people that applied early on see changes, see positive changes. It's incredible. Do you ever, with, with such incredible results and just being so sure of the science and the nutrition, do you ever look out at the world sometimes and be frust- and feel frustration that this knowledge isn't getting to more people because obviously there's so much suffering and so much disease because of people's diets and lifestyles. Do you ever feel that frustration? Every day. Yeah. Every single day. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as as much as we say that things are looking better and um, the scientific world and, and physicians in particular, they now do agree because there's there's a lot of data that, you know, dementia is preventable and that can people can improve their brain health even if they don't have that diagnosis at the pre-dementia stage, as, as Dean was saying. However, it takes a lot of effort to actually sit down with someone, sit down with the community, listen to them, find out their nuances, find out their resources, their limitations, and work towards a better brain health project moving forward. And people don't want to invest in that. You know, some of the greater grant agencies where we apply for grants for research protocol, they're so myopic. They want to look at how is this molecule being affected by this chemical? And if you can show me the relationship between these two, and if there is a delta, if there's a statistical change and a p-value of you know less than 0.001 percent there you go you get fifty thousand dollars for your research project so those kind of research projects are being funded but something as complex as lifestyle where people actually change their lives and it takes a longer period of time is usually not supported so that's Mm. very frustrating humans are impatient but we are very excited because uh, our non-for-profit healthy minds initiative We've actually been quite successful reaching communities. One of the projects that we're doing in the African-American churches in L.A. and now going to New York, uh, we won the National Academy of Medicine Award for that, which yeah. is an incredible honor. For the first time, they're looking at it at, from that Congratulations. perspective. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's we, we're going to expand it. Uh, we, we're hoping because this is the way it would work. You don't just do a top-down way where they, you take a project and throw it at people. And then when it fails, you say, oh, they failed. They didn't fail. We failed. So our approach is community-based participatory, which means we go to the communities, we listen to them, we actually give them ownership, we train them along their culture, their language, their food, their environment, and change life in the way that they're comfortable, but in a quantifiable way. And that's the only way that you can bring change that's sustainable. Mm -hmm. And it's not about us, it's about them. So this project is expanding uh, we're getting in, uh, you know, we just put out a, a call for volunteers and we got 200 people volunteering to help out. Absolutely. Uh, it's just a beautiful life. And no, I'm very optimistic. We're very optimistic. <laughs> I sounded pessimistic no, no, no. there, but thank you for course correction. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but he's right. Um, there, there are a lot of amazing things happening and especially us winning this grant for the African-American church project was just incredible. We're so, so, so happy about that. Mm. Moving on a bit, Aisha, you have completed a cooking degree. I have no idea how you managed to find the time to do that, but you did. Uh, tell me a bit about that, why you did it and uh, what was your motivation? 
I love food. What can I say? <laughs> and, you know, uh, in, in more seriousness, you know, when, when I was training as a resident, I did two residency programs, so preventive medicine and neurology. And, you know, I found myself as a trainee just talking about lifestyle to everyone because at the end of the day, I didn't want to be someone just giving aspirin and cholesterol pills and blood pressure pills to my patients because you know that those medications are important. I'm not anti-medicine at all. They're very, very important. However, they don't really address the source of the disease. They don't address the pathology. They just, they essentially address the symptoms. And so how do you, how do you help people to get rid of that source of the disease? And that's through lifestyle. So I found myself printing out my recipes and I had a stack of papers on my desk and I would give out these recipes and I wanted to get better at it. I wanted to get formal training. So when I was in New York, I actually spent two years in New York away from Dean and the kids and I would fly back and forth every two weeks to go hug the kids, kiss them and then go back to work. I, I, I went to a night school, um, the uh, Natural Trump. Gourmet Institute in New York for two years. You know, I would be in the ICU in my scrubs taking care of patients with stroke and cerebral hemorrhages. And then at night I would go cut potatoes potatoes and onions and learn how to make plant-based gravies. And so, you know, at the end of two years, I got my degree and I realized that most people understand that nutrition is incredibly important. Most people understand that they need to bring a change. It's the how, how do I do that? How do I let go of some food that is incredibly delicious, that reminds me of my family, of my background, of my life in the past. I don't want to feel deprived. I want to have taste, but how do I do it? And that's what we've been focusing on. So, you know, in the Healthy Minds Initiative and in a lot of other projects, you know, right now we're, I'm sitting I'm sitting in my kitchen where we do live cooking sessions, where we actually teach people how to cook food for themselves. And there's so much joy and joy into that. Uh, one of the projects that we're doing as far as the community side, every Friday, Aisha, and uh, we do cooking and answering questions and answers. So at one o'clock in a couple, in, a, in about in, in 40 <laughs> minutes, there'll be a cooking session to hundreds of people that are going to be joining and they're going to learn how to learn, learn a new recipe and how to apply it to their life. I think it's the most important thing that we do. Well, she does. I'm, I'm, I do the hardest part of the work, which is I taste the food, make sure it's, it's, it's worth it. No, I'm also a sous chef, a terrible sous chef. No, you're but, great. You're but awesome. It, but it's that, like the most important thing. You're not going to be feeling deprived. It's not going to be esoteric and weird foods and difficult. And it's going to taste great. And it's going to change your life. What's more important than that? Some physicians are reluctant to say food is medicine because food isn't technically medicine, but food is made of chemicals and molecules, just like medicine. Why do you think some physicians are reluctant to say food is medicine or call food medicine-like? But when you guys are doing your work, you're doing your incredible work, you're using lifestyle and food to heal people. So why can't food be medicine? Yeah, I think some the, the the fear is that there's a uh, there's a whole bunch of lifestyle docs that are, that are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. It's like anti science, anti medicine, anti this. I'm like, no. Why would I give up the car now? I like the car. Now let's make it more efficient so it doesn't destroy the environment. I, you know, I like the plane. Let's make it efficient so now we can figure out electrical. So we, medicine is good. Cholesterol-lowering medicines help people. Mm-hmm. If you have a cholesterol in 400, if you're going to wait till you know a plant-based food reverses it, you might have a stroke tendon. Let's put them on and then switch them off as plant-based life takes over. So they're worried that, uh, that uh, uh, by saying food is medicine, it's like saying medicine is not medicine. No, medicine is medicine and food is medicine. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I think it ties to the whole concept of going back, you know, yeah. preserving the past. Um, and I think it, this particular thing that you just brought up also ties to this whole fight that's going on against vaccines, against progress in science, against the concept that what we're doing right now is bad. Let's go back to the past, you know, people fighting about their ancestral diet or people fighting over the people only lived to like 32 or something. Right, right, exactly. I think it's all, it all comes from the same place. You know, we as humanity, I find that argument very silly, to be honest with you. I'm like, I don't even want to talk about that. How we were back then doesn't even matter anymore because we are not them anymore. We respect it. We understand it even with good or bad or whatever. It's it, there's no judgment. It's it's a process. Yeah. But let's look at the beautiful, bright, amazing future. Yeah. Even even if, you know, there, there are people who say, well, our brain grew because we started consuming meat. That's not true, but even if it were true, it really doesn't matter because we are here now within this incredible brain and we have the capacity to come up with new thoughts, new inventions, new ideas. How about we just live in this in the present and plan for the future instead of fighting about what was in the past? And that whole idea of you know medicine bad, that's also a past protection. Let's just be future seekers and try to live there and try to advance and find out how we can use the resources we have today to make a better life for ourselves. Robbie, remember I said we met in Afghanistan and she came, sat next to me. <laughs> this is the energy that I'm like, okay, I got it. I'll marry you. I will marry you. I love it. Okay, I give in. Oh, I wanted to uh, point out that I absolutely love it when people say, oh, well, you know, we are who we are because of the meat that we eat and our brain this and meat that. I'm like, hang on a second. What is the fuel of the brain? It's glucose, right? It's glucose. Where it's do glucose. you find glucose in, imbi- in, a, in abundant quant- quantities oh. in our diet? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. You know, yes. This whole narrative that we eat too much fruit and that fruit is full of sugar and it's going to give me diabetes. I mean, we, we could go on for hours about the fights that go on. But speaking of food, I want to talk about your amazing book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. You know, it's fantastic. There's so much in it. There's it's not just a cookbook. There's just lots of other things in there. I'd love to hear about how you came up with the idea for the book. What some of the things that you can find in the book for those that don't have a copy of it? And uh, yeah, what's some of the sort of key areas that it focuses on? Oh, thank you so much, Robbie. Um, so we're really proud of the book and we wanted to create it for um our lovely patients and community members that we interact with because they would say, what do I do to protect my brain? So the the book is basically for people who want to know, what do I do to protect my brain and to prevent Alzheimer's disease and dementia? And not just Alzheimer's and dementia. How do I live in a way where I expand my brain capacity at every moment in my life. And so it has the the latest book, the the 30 day Alzheimer's solution has a very beautiful summary of the science, what needs to be done and a huge focus on creating healthy habits. So the knowledge is there, but how do you apply it into life? And then obviously 75 really good recipes. If I may say so myself, um, they're really delicious and we put our heart into it and, um, they've been, t- you know, they bas- basically they were created in our own kitchen and we wanted to share it with everyone to show them that it's easy, it's delicious, it's healthy. You can make it without breaking a bank and going to like, you know, high specialty food stores. These are things that almost every one of us have it in our pantry. And so when people kind of 
finish that book, what's one of the things, what are some of the things you want people to feel or think uh, about their lives? What, what is the sort of emotional takeaway from the book? I feel the power to change my life. Mm. I have the power to simply in small incremental changes completely change my life, my family's life, and my community's life. And it's not a magical endeavor. It's not going to come in a pill. It's not going to come in a magic food, but it's going to come in a lifestyle change that doesn't even doesn't just change my eating habits, but my thinking pattern and my, how I see the world around me. So I, I, I really think that this book, because it's very habit-centered, gives you the power to control your behaviors and habits in a way where you can bring that into anything, but especially health. Absolutely. Well, make sure you go out and get yourself a copy. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, <laughs> obviously, and you're not going to eat the pig because you're both vegan. Yes. But if I could give you one vegan dish, one music album and one book, what would you take with you on that oh, desert island? Um, Aisha, you go first. Oh, God, that's unfair. Oh, that is hard. Okay, one vegan dish. Let's see. I would, I would probably be a tofu dish. I love tofu. It would probably be a tofu burrito because <laughs> I love it with lots of greens and vegetables in it. Music, well, you know, I'm, I'm a singer and I, I listen to so many different kinds of music. I would probably just pick something that is that inspires me. And nowadays, I've been listening to Michael Kiwanuka. So I probably will take that album. And as far as book is concerned, gosh, that's a hard one too. Can I take a Kindle and just like download all the <laughs> no like you, can't, you can't access any uh, technology. Yeah, uh, but I, I, you know, once I read a book, I don't read it again. What think of a book that that really inspired you in your journey in life? There, there might, but I would probably take um, Paolo Coelho's book, The Warrior of Light. Because that just impacted my life. What and a wonderful story. I love that. Yes. Uh, we, we named uh, both our kids. The mid, their middle name is Light. Mm -hmm. uh, the, if they're going to come in this planet, they better be warriors of light. Yeah. And fight for every every just injustice. Amazing. So, and, yeah. and Dean, what's your book, music, and uh, dish? Dish, um, Aisha's pizza, um, uh, vegan pizza, <laughs> is remarkable. Robbie, I mastered making cashew cheese. It's wow. really, really good. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. I forgot um, about that. Maybe I'll take that too. <laughs> music, I, 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 lots of, but but Beatles. Come together, right 
Beatles, Beatles yeah. song, yeah. Beatles album is amazing. Uh, Imagine and, and any of those is fantastic, and and I love music and. And then as far as book, Animal Liberation, any of the uh, uh, books, that, because that's the book that we read the moment. Peter Singer? Peter Singer's yeah. book. When we were dating, we read Animal Liberation together. Oh, wow. Yeah. We didn't even get into animal rights. Maybe we can do that on part two and talk about animal sentience and the brain of animals a bit more. But Would love um, to. That's such a great book. Would love it to. is. It is. That was the book that actually, uh, actually the, the next week, we got the book and we went to the top of the room and we read the book from cover to cover. Yeah, we read it out loud to each other. It yeah. was written in the stars, you two meeting. I just I just know it. <laughs> it was meant to be. That's been a fantastic podcast. An hour has absolutely flown by. I could honestly <laughs> talk to you both for another three hours, probably. <laughs> but that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, fashion, animals, health, nutrition, and everything in between.